The book of Romans, which we've been studying and will continue to study for quite a while from now, um, seems to repeatedly change people and ultimately their lives and our own worldview. And so in recent weeks, we've been studying this text, and in the coming months, we're going to see it as a key or pivotal biblical text to us personally. Romans brings about soul-satisfying understanding through knowing the gospel and how it proclaims the righteousness of God, and further, that this righteousness is only through faith and that this faith comes to us through the mercy of God. So as a review, Romans was directed to a church experiencing some tension between Jewish Christians and Gentiles. The message that Paul is emphasizing here is that the gospel of God is a message of the holiness of God. You hear that? The holiness of God. And that this perfection is offered to us through the life and death of Christ as a free gift. We have no ability to earn salvation on our own as we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Now, Paul shows us that the gospel makes sinners right with God and that this incredible gift is enjoyed. It's enjoyed in our lives, and a true joy and peace that changes us should produce a continuous alteration of our thoughts and of our behavior and of how we worship, like this morning, right? So wrestling with the book of Romans is a is a word that's used frequently among some scholars, the word wrestling. It, um, it's tough sometimes as you work through the text. And John Stott wrote of his love-hate relationship with Romans because of its joyful, painful, personal challenges. He writes, it was Paul's devastating exposure of universal human sin and guilt in Romans which rescued me from that kind of superficial evangelism which is preoccupied only with people's felt needs. Did you see a couple of words in there? Felt needs? That's a statement that should startle us, wouldn't you think? And the word superficial evangelism should give us pause. Perhaps that's because these words hint, if not display, that we must take this text into our heart and avoid any surface evangelization that avoids inference to God's wrath. A few weeks ago, we covered how Paul was a missionary at heart and that his life and travels demonstrate the full spectrum of the expression of sharing the gospel of Christ. In Romans chapter 1, we read of Paul's unashamed boasting of the gospel truth, and he reminds us that Christ completed this exchange of our sins right? It's an exchange of our sins that we're not able to accomplish, and that grace through faith in Christ calls us to Him. As a reflection, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul wrote, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. 
Living by faith includes the idea that a sovereign creator created many good things in this world for us to enjoy. And in proper perspective, this is good, and we are totally free to do so. But we have to be aware that if we ignore the gospel message or when we do and respond to his grace and love in ungodliness or unrighteousness or ingratitude, then wrath is certain to be revealed. So as we're looking at verses 18 through 25, we're going to see linkages in the text as Paul anchors his argument. So as we read through it, as I read through it, look for the the words for and therefore. I'm going to highlight those. They form a sequence of thoughts tied together in logical order. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Pay attention now. This is coming at the end. Who is blessed forever? Amen? Amen. So we have some concepts that are linked here. The wrath of God and the suppression of the gospel and natural revelation. We have the knowledge of God and the revelation of wrath. We have the invisible attributes of God and the knowledge of God. We have our foolish idolatry and inexcusable worship. And then finally, we have God's giving up and permitting us, permitting us to get what we want. See, that's a vivid picture of true decline in the nature of man. Yet today, we're honoring His Word for how it compels us to love Him. You see, we are also at awe for the exchange of sins and the grace bestowed upon us. Simply, I could have struggled with how to title this message, and others have as well, about how we transfer our worship away from the Creator. And we could have easily titled this message something like, How Not to Live by Faith. Not very compelling though, right? Okay. Or, How to Make Your Own Religion. But today, the point of today is that we must see and absorb this text, understanding wrath, using it to evaluate our hearts, and to know, to most importantly know, how do we escape this trap, this demise? How do we liberate our affections from this? Because, as it says in our text, 
Wrath is two things. It is both real and revealed. Popular as it may be today is a concept that can loosely be called universalism. And that's the general idea that God is love and that because of all this, all peoples will end up in heaven. We speak often of love and joy and abundant living and eternity, just not judgment and wrath. Certainly, this is not an easy topic, and it's tempting to avoid working through in this passage, but the whole gospel is available to us and intended to be used for our benefit and instruction. Agreed? Agreed. Thus, we're not going to swerve our study around this just because it's a little unnerving. It's quite unnerving, as a matter of fact. Understanding wrath of God is critical. But, hear me, it's God's settled and perfectly righteous antagonism toward evil. Now, a few weeks ago, Pastor Tim described how the discipline of God is corrective. What else is it? Formative, but never retributive for those who are in Christ. God is holy, and we should take heart that our God is not unpredictable in character or His response to sin, right? We have, it's constant. In this letter, the wrath of God might seem unfair, but God's wrath is His love in action. It's a love in action towards us, towards sin. Without recognizing this wrath, we might lose the sense of a grim and undeniable danger that is faced by those who are not in Christ. It makes things so much brighter for, the, for looking at Christ. Knowing this makes us appreciate the gospel even more. That's why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. So clearly, wrath is demonstrated throughout Scripture, Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Specifically, let's look at Isaiah 9.19. It says, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. In the New Covenant, we see our current text as well as John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the what? wrath of God remains on him. Or Ephesians 5, 6, where it says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Perhaps even more specific is 2 Thessalonians 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You see, I pray we never boast in our position in Christ. We are saved by grace, through faith, and it is not of our own doing. And to fully grasp this passage, we need to understand how wrath applies in the text. Would you agree? Here we must know that wrath is not irrational, as I mentioned. It's not irrational as humans would exhibit wrath. 
wrath from God is revealed against all what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness. And for our study this morning, ungodliness seems to focus more on a vertical relationship with God. Unrighteousness can refer to a horizontal field where we become in contravention with each other or other peoples, our horizontal relationships. So in 18 or verse 18, God's wrath is also being what? It's being revealed. Now this is in antithesis, as we talked about, there's linkages here, verses 16, 17, 18. This is an antithesis to verse 17. Wrath is revealed as opposed to the righteousness of God being revealed. John Murray describes this wrath as the, hear this, the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is in the contradiction of His holiness. So it's important for us to see that God's wrath is both historic and present. We see it in the Old Testament and New. And the word reveal likely refers to two things, how this wrath comes into being, how it's shown, as well as to whom it's being shown. And what's key for us to know is that wrath is actually inflicted by God, a judgment which shows both our present folly and the future wrath to come. Hebrews 1.9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see, the righteousness of God and the hatred of wickedness are balanced, perfectly balanced. He is perfect in love as well as hate. Thanks be to God for that. Because if we understand how much God detests or hates sin, we can find it so much more inspiring for us that He loves sinners. Amen? Even more, knowing that God's wrath is now and yet to come causes us to be much more engaged with mission. And Pastor Tim talked about the missional lifestyle of Paul. It talks, it causes us to be more engaged with evangelism. As Pastor Tim noted, Paul's life and travels were extreme examples of a missional life. But you know what? We all suppress the truth. You know, we see that in the first part of Romans chapter 1, it summarizes that we're saved by grace through faith, and further that the wrath of God is real and present. The apostle clarifies that those people who are guilty of ungodliness and unrighteousness are those who suppress the truth. So, is it possible to suppress or hinder the truth of the gospel? More importantly, does anyone anywhere have an excuse not to know the truth? Because the reality is we are able to know His power, His deity, His glory, and this knowledge is enough. You see, moreover, it's also important to realize that the word truth in verse 18 points to a general truth of God that is clearly available and observable to all people everywhere. Turn to verses 19 through 20. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
Now, see, Paul is anticipating an objection here, that some people do not know any better. Thus, how would God hold them accountable for their folly? In our text, it's simple. God made himself plainly known to all, right? But there's two purposes with this, the first being that the evidence for God is plain to all, and the second being that we are without excuse and responsible for the situation. Is this inconsistent? No, it's not inconsistent at all. God manifested his truth about him through invisible characteristics and inference to all things made. And for support, Paul anchors his argument back in the creation of the world. If we look at John 1.9, it says that Christ is the light for all men. It's painfully evident by all that God created everything, and we don't have a defense for our ignorance of this, ignorance of this general knowledge. And while this may sound hard, we know it's not because God is not arbitrary. And his will, as I mentioned before, is perfectly balanced. Let's look at John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, Christ is the light to all mankind. That light sheds light on all men. Yet while everyone is covered by the light, not all are saved. You see, we're without excuse because we have turned away from His eternal power and divine nature. Even those who have yet to hear the gospel are without excuse. It says in our text, which we know is the clear word of God, right, that all people internally know that there is a Creator and that we will never fully comprehend. Knowing that, we are entirely dependent and accountable to Him for everything we experience. But there is a consequence for this demise, right? God's perfectly balanced. There's a consequence, and the consequence is for foolish worship. So as we continue unfolding this section of text, we see the consequences of our behavior. We know that the wrath of God is revealed to men and that there is no excuse for not knowing the truth of the Creator. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. All humans know God, but no one honors Him and gives Him thanks. This is not to imply that wrath, the wrath of God is only in response to ungratefulness or not saying thank you. It's a refusal to recognize the goodness of God and His holiness. It's quite more profound than ungratefulness. When we don't recognize grace or love or His sovereign control of the universe, we are simply trying to pridefully claim some sort of independence. We're trying to make something our own. And as Pastor Tim pointed out a few weeks ago, it's also a lie And the lie is simply that we can pretend to think that we can exchange the glory of God with an object of our created worship, and it woos the attention of many. It's quite striking because our minds are not vacant by suppressing the truth. It doesn't leave a hole that's nothing filled into it. We become religious and more affectionate towards something that we craft on our own. 
So after knowing the truth of God's glory and the gospel message, we can't deceive ourselves into thinking that we have no need for grace because that would be foolhardy, and as Paul explains quite clearly, they became futile in their thinking. And in verse 21, it illustrates that the result of futile thinking is to have our hearts what? Darkened. It's to have our hearts darkened. Later in this text, we're going to see that self-crafted idols become the object and the extent of our worship. Did you hear that, the extent of our worship? That's as far as it goes. Consider the words futile thoughts, though. Often in the New Covenant, the word thoughts conveys or expresses what we would call evil thoughts. And these evil thoughts relate to humans crafting their own religion and ultimately their own worship object. Now, I'd say, and most of you would agree, that that's a serious condemnation of our human response to the natural revelation of God and the saving message of the gospel. So what more can be said about our proclivity to offer worship to an object created by our own hands? It's vain and pointless and a process that unfortunately none of us is immune to. But that classic rejection or suppression, or sometimes the word stifling has been used, is depicted in the Old and New Covenants. And there's several examples where we don't give glory to God, but idols instead. Look at Psalm 106.20. It says, they exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Or Jeremiah 2 where Israel forsakes the Lord and they are accused of exchanging God? Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? You see, the rejection of God is really cast with clarity as well in the New Testament in Acts 12. Now, if it doesn't spring to mind, it's because it's the backdrop right after the discourse on Peter, and then Herod's death is described. It says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So why was he struck down? Because he did not give what? God the glory. You see, the description in verse 22 is a human rationalization, and due to this, we're plainly called fools because of rejecting the truth. I read that Voltaire, some of you remember Voltaire from school. Voltaire wrote, God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor. How sad. You know, but unfortunately, the French philosopher was, is, correct? And truly, this is a behavior of fools and a non-sequitur of the most high order. There is no logic in this. 
It's a demise. We see it. There's no logic in it, but we do it anyway. And then finally, in verse 23, we execute and culminate this unholy exchange. So while we have had the exchange of our sins on the cross, we're executing a sinful exchange. And while God exchanged our sins, we, as it says, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Douglas Moo said it well. The tragic process of human God-making continues apace in our own day. And Paul's words have as much relevance for people who have made money or sex or fame their gods as for those who carved idols out of wood and stone. You see, our lusts are fulfilled, and that sinful exchange still takes place today. We are creatures that have a desire for purpose and direction. And the things of this world capture our time, and unfortunately, sometimes even more than that. They capture our time, they capture our attention, they capture our, would you say, allegiance would be a scary enough term. And occasionally, these affiliations become so important to us that our trust in them becomes paramount. And then we have an idol. And the idol can become what we serve, what we can't do without, and our possession of it, whatever it is, starts to validate our existence. Because if we don't have it, then where are we? And I'm not saying the world is full of all things that are bad and that we should not enjoy the good things of creation. Far from it. We should be able to live in joy and experience and share. However, we have to be cautious with our affections. The God of the universe made things in a particular order. Let's look at Genesis 1.26. It said, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So you see we have this flow. But by verse 23 in this text, we've done this. We've turned it upside down, and we create our own items of worship. And the things, in short, it's things that we desire. And we make the priority decision to live for our own selfishness. But God is holy. And it would be inconsistent of His divine nature to ignore this upside-down turn, our refusal to worship Him as He is. So what is expressed here is punishment. And punishment, as we shall see, is the wrath of abandonment for rejecting the truth, which is our own folly. Verse 24 says, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. That is to say, their moral condition, and at times our own, is how we have become tainted. We must know that this abandonment is the righteous response of a holy God. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, wrestling is a term that is often used for people who read Romans. This is not to say, you know, in wrestling, when somebody gets done, they're like, I'm done, we tap out. Okay, this is not to say that God is tapping out and uninvolved in this process any further. Rather, the words gave over 
indicate an active role in the culmination of this moral response. As it says in Psalm 81, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. This does not indicate that God is spiteful or cruel. The wording here and beyond this text shows that God is active in the process of giving them up to the lusts of their impurity. It seems like in one sense that just being entangled in our own chosen lust may be the punishment enough. And in this way, the wrath of God is handing us over or giving us what we want. You see, all through this passage, Paul has crafted this logical argument and an emotional argument that's charged where there is substantial and relevant reason for God's anger. We are at fault. And in upcoming verses, the point is driven home as Paul repeatedly uses the phrase, God gave them up. What did he give them up to? Clearly, the sinful desires of our heart. One illustration I researched described this giving up process as though we are floating on a stream in a small little boat and the current is running away from God at a pace that's feverish. And yet, because of our own sinful desires, God allows us by taking his finger off the boat to go in our own sinful direction and ultimately to our own destruction. Some people have said it's not just taking the finger off, it's actually giving it a little push. You see, by this giving over, we are pridefully controlled by the desire of our hearts. Yet we were crafted in the image of God with our hearts made to be fulfilled by the Creator. He is the only source of true satisfaction and significance. We can't look anywhere else for this peace. Now, there is tragedy here. We choose and try and work to obtain satisfaction of our own folly, all the while the truth is free and all-satisfying. More than 100 years ago, Oscar Wilde wrote a comedic stage play, and there's a line in the play which is suitable for us today. It says, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. Now, consider the poor fellow who finds himself worshiping career, money, finances, a job, a company, exercise, physical status, whatever it might be. It's a slow poison in our life that could be worsened by achieving worldly success. Twenty years ago, I believe it was 20 years, I penned the phrase, beware of mass appeal. So if you ask my sons, the one thing I said to most of them when they were growing up, they would probably say, beware of mass appeal or B-O-M-A, the acronym. Close seconds would be things like, clean up your room, be careful, keep your name out of the papers, and of course, point the gun downrange. Okay? It's all helpful instruction. But the mass appeal that I'm referring to here is not saying that toys or widgets or trends or jobs or wealth are necessarily bad. Clearly, we are permitted to enjoy good things because in Genesis, we know that all things were created in His image and we are allowed to enjoy His creation. After all, God created the world and it was very good. Romans 1.18 the starting point of our text is the ever-present reminder that there is such a thing as wrath, the wrath of God, and it's revealed. It's revealed against those who turn good things into the one thing or the ultimate thing. 
Yet the final quest of our affections must be His glory and nothing else. We have to keep ourselves from ungodliness and unrighteousness. So the point, what's the point of escape from this demise? How are fools rescued from this mess? So in closing, what are we to do? Well, how do we turn from the lie and get our vertical worship in line? God's wrath is real, and deep down we know it, and we don't have any excuse for hiding or stifling the truth. God justly releases us to our sinful desires or gives us a push. The first thing to realize is that Paul will begin to explain in chapter 3 that the righteousness of God will be upheld. That's not really something we're questioning. But even here in verse 25, Paul gives us a solution or a clue to a solution. Notice the words at the end of the text where it says, is blessed forever. That's a clue. You see, the fact is we should stop suppressing the truth and cease from our ungodly and unholy infatuation with the lie. We should praise God as God for who He is and what He has already done. We should recognize and completely surrender our worship to Him, and we should praise His blessing over anything that we attempt to create, because otherwise we become fools. So your response back to me might be, that sounds easy, but I'm still drawn to the world. In fact, I like it. Now, I'm not saying that ignoring the allure of worldly appeal and the prideful pursuits we fall prey to is is a trifle thing, but I believe that our inspiration on how to focus and give God the glory and the desire and to praise Him above all else is driven from our understanding of the gospel, the text. It's through the gospel that we know we are loved by God and called to be His saints. So today's Sunday, and in this coming week, it might be good for each of us to consider the following. Do we see the truths of these verses in our own life before we were Christians? Do we? Can you see those historical issues? Are there remnants of unrighteousness or ungodliness that shadow our daily lives today? It's a good question for all of us because we have to find these remnants hidden in the shadows. They have to be driven out. And ultimately, that that passion we have for worldly allure, we have to extinguish anything that beckons our worship away from the Creator. Remember that wrath is revealed to those that exchange God for something lesser. Likewise, His love and joy are revealed to those who exchange everything for God. There are many good things here in life. We just can't make the good things the ultimate pursuit. At a minimum, idolatry is going to bring disillusionment to your life and daily walk, and mine too. Conversely, at a maximum, idolatry will bring wrath for ungodliness and unrighteousness for those not in Christ. What if that's you today? Well, you know what? There is courage. There is, there is something to take heart with because there is grace and mercy and salvation for those that are called onto Him. So how much time this week are you going to devote simply giving God glory being thankful for all things, 
and knowing of his love. Reading the Bible and devotions is a key step in how we can always think and depend on him for supernatural help. Now, I realize the good things can't easily absorb our affections, but we must pray to be focused on his glory and to be thankful for it. I pray that if we give praise and glory to him in the righteous order that's been set before us, that we will be able to withstand the lie of the sinful exchange and worship him as designed.